Well, good morning. As Pastor Steve said, I'm the director of high school ministries here at Harvest, and it is a transitional time in our ministry right now, as we've seen our seniors graduate and move on to Amplify and have welcomed an incoming class of new freshmen. And I don't know if you can remember back to this time in your life, the summer between your eighth grade year and your freshman year, but for my friends and I, it was the most excited that we had ever been to start school. And the reason for that is that we were excited to go to high school and to experience all it had to offer. Varsity sports, uh, getting our driver's license, going to homecoming and prom and things like that. And I can still remember the first day that I felt like an official high schooler. It was a few weeks before school started, and it was a day where you went to pick up your schedule. And I went and I was very excited and I I picked up my schedule and I was looking down the list of my classes and immediately when I saw this one particular class, my excitement turned to dread and fear. Swim class. Swim class. Now, for most of you, you would probably be very excited about that. I mean, it sounds fun, right? And really, how hard could it be? What kind of homework can they give you in swim class, right? But for me, it immediately caused my heart to start beating and my hands to start trembling because I can't swim. I mean, if you threw me into the middle of the Illinois River after being smacked around by a few Asian carp, I would immediately sink to the bottom, And and I don't want to have any idea what's at the bottom of the Illinois River. Are you with me there? (laughs) But I can't swim. And so for the next two weeks, I did not want to go to high school. Because I knew what would happen when I went to swim class. All my friends would be down in the deep end, and they'd be going off the high dive, they'd be going off the diving board, and I would be down all the way here in the shallow end, and they would say funny things to me like, Hey Shane, get your floaties on and come on down here to the deep end. And swim class started two weeks later, and it pretty much went exactly how I thought it would. It was miserable, and it was embarrassing at times. But I quickly learned on days where I knew we would be doing difficult things that would be embarrassing for me, I would strategically forget to bring my swim trunks. All right, you with me? I mean... They can't throw you in the pool when you're dressed like this, right? So that would allow me to miss out on the activity and the embarrassment of the day. Well, of course, my my swim teacher was a smart guy, and he eventually caught on to what I was doing. And towards the end of the class, he walked up to me one day, and he said, Shane, if you don't bring your trunks tomorrow and do this thing that we're doing tomorrow, you will fail swim class. Now, I cared about my grades, and that concerned me. But what really bothered me was the thing that he said next. He said, you will fail swim class, and you will have to take it again. (laughs) And that was the absolute last thing that I wanted to do. So the next day, I brought my swim trunks, and, and all we had to do, it would probably be very simple for most of you in here today. All we had to do was swim from one side of the pool to the other. 
So everyone's taking their turn, and my swim teacher has his stopwatch out, and everyone's comparing times and see who can make the fastest time. And I'm just trying to stay in the background the whole time. And towards the end of the class, my swim teacher said, Okay, has everybody gone? And I'm trying to stand in the back and not move at all and be as motionless as possible. And one of my friends said, he hasn't gone. And that he said, my swim teacher said, that's right, Shane, come on up here. It was the slowest walk of my life going to the front of the pool. It was like walking the green mile. And so I get up to this little rectangle platform thing that you see swimmers jump off of. And I get up on this thing. And everyone else is standing all around the outside of the pool, knowing that something funny is about to happen. There's this kind of quiet, giggling buzz going throughout the pool. And I'm standing on this platform, and I'm looking at the water, and my swim teacher said, Ready, go. And I stand there. And of course, everyone starts laughing, and he says, okay, 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 this time I will count to three and say go to prepare you. And I said, okay. And so the next thing I do is this, because that's what swimmers do, right? When you see them on TV, they put their hands out like this before they jump on the water. And he says, one, two, three, go. And I do about the goofiest thing that I probably could have done next. I do this. So now I'm standing here like this, holding my nose, because I don't want water to go anywhere that it normally doesn't go. I'm not a big water person, if you can't tell. And then basically, I fall forward into the pool and smack. And I close my eyes as tight as I can, because again, I don't want water to go anywhere it doesn't normally go. And I begin swinging my arms and kicking my feet as hard as I possibly can. And then something amazing happened. I made it to the other side. And it happened so much faster than I thought it would. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, like, in a half a second, you can have 50 thoughts go through your head. But from the time I touched the wall, from the time I pulled my head up out of the water, I thought to myself, man, that was really fast. Maybe I'm not a bad swimmer. Maybe I'm a great swimmer. Maybe I'm going to pull my head up out of the water and everyone's not going to be laughing, but they're going to be cheering because I just had the fastest time in the class. Maybe I'm going to join the swim team. Maybe I'm going to win state. Maybe I'm going to go to college on a swim scholarship. Maybe I will be an Olympic gold medalist swimmer. So I pull my head up out of the water. And of course, everyone was not cheering. They were laughing. Because see, what had happened was I had swam about eight feet directly to my right to the side of the pool and touched the side wall of the pool. And the worst thing was, was my swim teacher said, okay, now you have to get out of the water and do it again. And so this time I did this kind of awkward little dog paddle thing all the way down the pool and I survived and I got a C in swim class. All right. If you think about why I didn't make it to where I wanted to go, the answer is pretty obvious. I closed my eyes and it caused me to go in a different direction from where I wanted to go. And sadly for us, As Christians, sometimes we do the same thing. We know where we want to go. We want to move forward towards Christ. But sometimes we close our eyes to the truth and the hope that we have in Christ. And it causes us to go in the wrong direction.
And often this is a result of, of difficult circumstances. It's an illness. It's loss of a loved one. It's loss of a job. It's family issues. Infertility issues. Just the, the pressures of life. And when we most need to keep our eyes on Christ and move forward, we close our eyes to the truth and the hope that it offers, and we begin going in a different direction. Now, I have no doubt that, that there are some people here that are discouraged, and you, found, you find yourself right now going in the wrong direction. My hope today for you is that the Word of God would empower you and encourage you to draw close to Him right now in your time of need. And then many of us here, uh, hopefully, are on track, and you're passionate and fired up and pursuing Christ and drawing forward. Well, I think this message applies to you as well, because we know from the Word of God that we are all promised to face trials. And so hopefully, this Word today will better prepare you for when trials come. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 42. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will be coming forward and passing uh, out Bibles. You can throw your hand up and they'll put one in your hands. Psalm 42. One thing I love about the Bible is it's not about perfect people. Here in Psalm 42, we see the psalmist. He no doubt wants to, to move forward and to draw close to God. But we see that he begins to close his eyes to the truth and the hope that it offers. And we see at times that he begins to go in the wrong direction away from God. And it's undoubtedly the result of difficult circumstances for him. He has been captured by an enemy of the Israelites. And he has been uh, exiled to a faraway land. And he is removed from his ability to worship God in the temple. And here in Psalm 42... Um, we see that he begins to close his eyes and go in the wrong direction. Throughout the psalm, we see him alternate between feelings of great discouragement and his fight for hope. But we see in verse 1 that he is thirsting for God. Read with me here, verse 1 and verse 2. It says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist says that he thirsts for God like a deer pants for the stream. Now I'm guessing that many of us here get an inaccurate picture in our minds when we picture this scene. Perhaps you think of uh, the old sweet soft song, As the Deer Pants for the Water. And you get a picture of that in your mind. Or perhaps you think of a portrait that you've seen in a Christian bookstore of a deer that is peacefully and contently approaching an abundant flowing stream in the calm wilderness. Well, the actual picture that the psalmist is trying to paint here is quite different. More accurately, the deer is searching for water to survive, and it's nowhere to be found. Undoubtedly, the psalmist had seen deer uh, in times of, of uh, drought wandering and looking for water without finding it anywhere. Usually deer are very cautious when they're, when they're looking for water because they know that predators await and are lurking to prey upon them. But in the dry season in Israel, uh, streams and springs were sparse. And now the deer has thrown all caution aside and is looking for water anywhere he can find it to survive. The same could be said about the psalmist as well. 
His soul is thirsty beyond words. He so desperately desires to worship God in the temple. But because he's been exiled and removed from that opportunity, he feels abandoned and alone. But here we learn a crucial and beautiful picture and principle that we must learn and emulate from the psalmist. We see from the psalmist in this verse that he is not primarily thirsting for relief from his circumstances. Above all, he is thirsting for God himself. And it's certainly okay to want relief and to pray for relief. But above all else, we must thirst for the one who gives relief. The almighty God, the living God. This became uh, very alive to me one day when I was playing with my dogs, of all things. Uh, we have two Australian Shepherds. We've got a picture of them for you here. Um, they're awesome dogs. The one that has brown is Luther, and the one that is black and white is Augustine. They are dually named after great theologians and great Illinois basketball players. All right, are you with me? We've got Luther Head and Martin Luther and James Augustine and St. Augustine. Okay, so you can see some of the passions in our house. Um, but they are as different from each other as can be from the moment I walk in the door. When I walk in the door, Luther, after kind of an exuberant and spastic greeting, he settles down and becomes very laid back. And he's very content to just kind of follow me around and sit next to my side. Augustine, on the other hand, the second I walk in the door, he blitzes to go find this green ball that we gave him a while ago. And he goes and finds it, and he brings it to me, and he drops it at my feet, and his eyes get real big, and he wags his little tail, and he looks at me like, throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it. And I throw it, and he chases it, and I throw it, and he chases it, and it happens over and over and over and over again. And one day I was thinking about that, and I thought to myself, Man, why does he love that green ball so much? I mean, it's old and it's slobbery and it's dirty. And to be quite honest with you, it's kind of gross. And then it hit me one day. It's not the ball that he loves. It's the boy that he plays it with that he loves so much. It's not what was given to him, the ball that he thirsted for. It was the giver and companionship with the giver of the ball that he thirsted for so much. And we need to be the same way. We should not thirst for what God gives us primarily. We should thirst for him and companionship with him. And that's what we see the psalmist doing here in verse 1 as he says his soul thirsts for God. So three things for you to consider. Three things for you to consider whether you are thirsting for God or thirsting for what he gives. Might be a good idea to write these down. Number one, when you pray, consider when you pray, are you more often thirsting? Are you more often asking God to give you things or even asking God to give other people things? Or are you more often asking God to simply give you more of himself, to show you his glory? Number two, consider why you read the Bible. Consider why you read the Bible. 
Do you read the Bible to gain a deeper understanding and knowledge of who God is, his character and his love for you, that you might be compelled to worship him more and give him more of your heart and life? Or do you read the Bible to acquire the type of knowledge that puffs up? So you can go to your small group or a Bible study and say, well, this week in my quiet time, I learned that this word is in the aorist tense in Greek. And therefore it means da, 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 da. All right. So everyone will look at you like Mr. Spiritual. Consider why you read the Bible. And then the third one is possibly the most challenging of the three. Consider how you would respond if God took away something he has given you. Consider how you would respond if God took away something he has given you. Would you respond with faith and hope and trust? Or would you respond in fear and in doubt and in anger? If you were left with Christ alone, would it be enough? Well, we don't have to wonder how the psalmist felt as his ability to worship in the temple was taken from him. We see very clearly from verse 3 that it led to brokenness. Look at me here with verse 3 in Psalm 42. This is what it says. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? My tears have been my food day and night. The psalmist finds himself crying day and night as a result of his difficult circumstances. So much so that he says, my tears have become my food. I don't know if you've ever been so sad or so broken or so discouraged that you couldn't eat. When I was in college, uh, my, my best friend from the time that I was eight years old, he died very unexpectedly one day. And to this day, it's, it's the most difficult thing I've ever experienced. And for two days, I had no appetite. Literally, for two days, the only thing that went into my mouth were my tears. My tears had become my food day and night. And this is the same type of hopelessness and brokenness that we see the psalmist has fallen into here. But we see from the second half of the verse that it's not only the fact that he's been removed to worship in the temple that's causing him to be so discouraged, but his captors have begun to taunt him as well. Look at me with, at the second part of verse 3. He says, My tears have become my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Where is your God? All day long is what he hears. And after a while, the psalmist begins to ask himself the very same question. Where are you, God? And we see from the rest of this passage, as we look through it, that the psalmist begins to go in the wrong direction. He begins to close his eyes to the truth and the hope that it offers in God, and he starts to go in the wrong direction. If you look at just a few verses quickly with me here, for example, in verse 6, he says, My soul is cast down within me. In verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's saying, I feel like I'm drowning in my circumstances here. 
And then in verse 9, perhaps his strongest statement. He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? The word forgotten here means ignored or neglected. The psalmist feels abandoned and rejected by God. And as a result of this, it's caused him to turn his eyes from the truth and the hope that it offers. And he forgets the promises of God. He says, God, why have you forgotten me? But he is so focused on his circumstances that it's caused him to forget the promise of God that he would never leave him or forsake him. And how easy is it for us to allow this to happen to us as well? Difficult circumstances come. And we find ourselves saying, God, why have you forgotten me? When we need to bank on the promises of God instead. So we see that the psalmist is very discouraged and he finds himself going in the wrong direction. But thankfully for us and for him, the psalmist doesn't throw in the towel. He fights back. He fights for hope. And he leaves us with two things that he does that we need to emulate as well. And the first one we see in verse 4. This is what he says. These things, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He says, these things I remember. He looks back in his life and he remembers a time when God was very real and present and powerful in his life. Now he is discouraged, but he looks back to a different time when God is very real. And he looks back to a time of corporate worship here where he has led people into the house of God and is leading them in joyful songs of praise. He fights for hope by looking back and remembering a time when God was very real to him. And I think we need to follow the psalmist's example and do the same, same thing. When we are discouraged, we need to look back and remember God. We need to remember times in our lives where he was very real and present and powerful. For me, I think back to when I was a senior in high school, 17 years old, had just been a Christian for a month or two. And I was at a Bible study and it hit me for the first time that my mom uh, possibly had, had never put her faith in Christ. And I got down on my knees and I prayed for God to give me the opportunity to share the gospel with her. And I went home that night and I sat down next to her and she asked me how church was. And and I said, good, kind of like we always said. And then she said, well, what have you been learning about? And I went into my bedroom and I got this gospel tract that I gotten from my church. And I sat down next to her and we began to, to weep tears of joy as she realized her need for a savior. And I look back at that time, and I remember that time, and I'm reminded that our God can heal and change hearts. Or I think of another time, several years ago, I was teaching high school, and it came to the end of the school year, and I began to strongly feel the call of God upon my life to surrender to full-time ministry. And I resigned from my teaching position, having no idea where I would go or what I would do. And a lot of my my friends thought I was crazy because my wife was getting her master's and she was unemployed and I was now unemployed and I had no idea what was coming next. And about a week later, 
the executive pastor of the church where we were members of, this awesome uh, 3,000 member church in Missouri. He called me and he said, would you be interested in becoming one of the youth pastors at our church? And I literally about dropped the phone. I had no seminary training. I had no ministry experience. I, I did nothing, but God moved in a mighty and powerful way and gave me an amazing opportunity. And I think about that. I look back and I remember that. And I'm reminded that our God has a purpose and a plan for our lives. And he is sovereign and he is in control. Or I think back uh, uh, not real long ago where I was facing some financial difficulties. And a brother in Christ that I didn't even know very well walked up to me one day and he, he put a check in my hand that far surpassed the need that, that I had. And I look back and I remember that and I'm reminded that our God is a provider. And if he takes care of the birds in the air, oh, how he will provide for his children. Or I, I think back to just a few weeks ago, right here in this place. Pastor Tim powerfully preached on our future home from Revelation 21. And then we all stood together and sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the Lord's presence was so real and it was so powerful. And he was here in that moment. And I think back to that and my heart is filled with joy. So I ask you, when you look back, When you remember, what have been some times that you have seen God show himself in a very powerful and real way in your life? And when you are facing times of discouragement, like the psalmist did, look back and remember those times. Fight for hope. Be reminded of who our God is. And then in verse 5, the psalmist gives us one more way. To fight for hope. Verse 5. He says. Why are you cast down. O my soul. And why are you in turmoil within me. Hope in God. For I shall praise. For I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. I don't know if you caught what he's doing here. I certainly didn't the first time I read it. But here, the psalmist at this point is not talking to God. He begins to talk to himself. He begins to preach to himself. He begins to preach to himself to stop focusing on your circumstances and focus on God. Put your hope in God. And we need to follow the example of the psalmist here again. And when we're facing discouraging circumstances, we need to fight for hope. By preaching to ourselves the truth of who God is. This is crucial in our fight for hope. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, one of the main reasons that we are unhappy is because we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. Now, here's the difference. When we allow our wandering thoughts to fill our minds with untrue statements about who God is, His character... His love for us and who we are with Christ, we are listening to ourselves. And it does nothing but bring us down. But when we talk to ourselves, when we preach to ourselves, we are very intentionally and purposefully filling our minds with the truth about who God is, His love for us, His plan and His purpose for our lives, and His sovereignty. 
This is what we see the psalmist doing in verse 5. He is preaching the truth to himself. Look back at with me here at the beginning of verse 5. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Literally, he's asking himself, why are you looking down away from God? And then he says in the second half of the verse, hope in God. Look up is what he's saying. Look to God. And this is what we need to do as well. We need to preach to ourselves to hope in God, our salvation, our deliverer. Hope here, in essence, basically means waiting on God to act. Waiting on God to act. And I realize it can be difficult at times to have hope. It requires faith. And at times, it requires patience. But our God has proven himself to be faithful throughout the generations and to be a deliverer and a savior. It reminds me of a story about two men. They were going to an art museum, and one of them was very excited about it. He loved art. The other one, he was just kind of along for the ride. Chess was more his thing. And so they're walking through this art museum and they're looking at at different paintings and some they find to be beautiful and some are inspirational and some are just flat out weird, if if you're with me there. And, And they come across this one particular painting and it really catches the eye of the chess player. And the painting is a picture of of two people playing a game of chess. And one of them is quite obviously Satan. And he's sitting up in his chair real tall. And real proud. And he has his arms folded. And he has this sheepish little grin on his face. And he's looking at the person across the table. And the person across the table is a young man. And he's obviously very discouraged. And very distraught. And sweat is coming down his face. And tears are coming down his eyes. As he looks at the chessboard before him. And the title of the painting is Checkmate. Checkmate, implying that Satan has won the battle over this young man's life. And they look at it for a while, and the guy who likes art says, all right, let's come look at some other paintings. And the other guy's like, no, 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 I want to stay, and I want to look at this for a while. And he says, okay, and he walks away. And so this guy begins to, to really zone in on this painting. And he begins to, to look at it really closely. And he's zoning in, and he's zoning in, and then he kind of dashes away. And he goes, to find, he goes and finds his friend. And he says, come on, come on, come on. You got to come back and see this. And the guy's like, man, what's your deal? And he's like, come on, come on. And he takes him back to the painting. And they walk up to the painting. And, and the guy says, we need to contact the artist of this painting. He either needs to change the painting or he needs to change the title of the painting. The guy's like, dude, what's your deal? And he points to one of the pieces of the young man. And he says, because the king has one more move. The king has one more move. Just like when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt and the Egyptian army was closing on him and the Israelites approached the Red Sea and it looked like there was nowhere for them to go and it looked like there was no hope and it looked like it was over for them. But wait, the king had one more move and he told Moses to raise his hand and raise his staff over the Red Sea and the Lord parted that Red Sea and the Israelites walked across on dry land and the Israelites were delivered. 
Or it reminds me of David, the young shepherd boy, stepping out to fight the giant Goliath. Nine foot tall, 15 foot spear. It looked like it was over for David. It looked like there was no hope. But David stepped forward and said, the battle belonged to the Lord. And the Lord provided a sling and stones for David. And David looked at that giant and said, he is so big, how could I miss? And he slays that giant and he hits the ground and the Israelites are delivered again. Or it reminds me of a time when the king told the Israelites that they were to worship no one but the golden image that he had created. And three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we worship no one but our God. And the king takes the three young men and he he throws them into this fiery furnace and he turns up the heat six times hotter than it normally is. And it looks like it's over for them. It looks like there's no hope. But wait, the king had one more move and he sends an angel of the Lord into the fiery furnace. And when men look in there, they no longer see three people, they see four. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerge from the fire without a hair on their head, even singed. And the Israelites were delivered again. Or it reminds me of another time when the king told the Israelites that they were to pray to no one but him. And David went to his house and he went up to his room and he opened the windows so that everyone could see. And he got down on his knees and he prayed three times a day. And the king arrested him. And the king is about to throw him into this den of hungry lions. And it looks like it's over for him. It looks like there's no hope. But wait, the king has one more move. And he sends an angel of the Lord and he turns those hungry angry lions into purring little kitty cats and Daniel walks out and the Israelites are delivered once again or it reminds me of the last days of Jesus when he was arrested when he was insulted when he was mocked when he was stripped naked when a crown of thorns was placed on his head when his beard was pulled from his face and they flogged him and they beat him and they put nails in his hands and they put nails in his feet and they left him on the cross to die and he did the God of the universe died And I can just imagine Satan looking on, sitting up real proud, folding his arms, and with a sheepish grin on his face saying, checkmate. But oh, wait, my friends, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, sickness, and death. And now whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And I'm here to tell you this morning that he can part your seas, he can slay your giants, he can deliver you from the lion, and he can save you from the fire. But what you need to do is keep your eyes on him. Draw close in him. Trust in him in the hope that he offers. Remember that he has been faithful to the generations for years and years to come and hope in him this is exactly what we see the psalmist doing in verse 5 here he is preaching to himself to hope in God who has been faithful throughout the generations and now that we are on this side of the cross 
The psalmist was on the other. Now that we are on this side of the cross, we know that our greatest grounds for hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the main thing that we need to preach to ourselves to fight for hope daily. It's 1 Peter 3.18. It's Christ died for sin once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. We need to take gospel verses like this. We need to store them in our hearts. And we need to preach themselves to ourselves daily to fight for hope. And when we find ourselves listening to ourselves, listening to untrue thoughts about who God is, we need to say, stop. Listen, self. The God of the universe. The one who created everything out of nothing. He loves you. And although you were once his enemy, and although you once rebelled against him, he sent his perfect son as a sacrifice to become your sin and to bear the wrath that you deserve. And if you put your faith and trust in him, and now that you have done that, you are his child and he is your father. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Thirst for Him. Remember Him. Hope in Him. Fight for hope. Let's pray.